All right, everybody, we are close enough to 11.05. We're going to go ahead here and get started. Um, certainly appreciate everybody being here. I know everybody's time is extremely valuable, so I'm going to go and try to give you as much value as I possibly can within the time that we're allotted here. I'm trying to keep it to under an hour is usually how I'm going to do this. And so um, my presentation today is really what I'm just calling my first entitlement. And so I'm trying to give you guys an idea really as far as like what entitlements are, how they add value, what different types of entitlements there are that are out there, and then give you like a, a case study at the end of the presentation. And then if anybody has any deals that they're working on, I'm certainly happy to give you like a, a quick review of what I think of them. Um, also, if you have any questions about anything in the presentation or anything related to what we're doing here, I'm certainly happy to field any of those questions as well. So we'll have time to hit all of that stuff. And so with that, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and then we'll just get into the presentation here. All right, so hopefully everybody can see my screen. If not, somebody yell out and let me know. Um, but anyway, like I said, this is called My First Entitlement. And um, if anybody doesn't know who I am really quickly, my name is Mike Marshall. I spent 15 to 20 years in land development and planning. I worked in planning and zoning offices in California and Texas. So I was working for the local jurisdictions. Um, while I was doing that, I started consulting with developers on the side on different projects that they were working on. I eventually left that, did consulting full-time as our own business and then branched out and started doing coaching as well, along with our own deals. So right now where our business is, is we're doing um, coaching, we're doing consulting, we're doing our own deals. So we're doing all those things at the same time. And ultimately the kinds of projects that I worked on were anything from custom single family homes to you know thousand lot residential subdivisions, to medical office buildings, to a TV and movie studio campus at one point as well. And so I've done a whole wide variety of different things within the development space but all within the field of entitlements. And so I'm gonna tell you more about that as we go into it in terms of what those are and how they can benefit you. So with that, we're just gonna jump right in. So what are entitlements? That's like the big question going if you don't know what they are. Ultimately, the thing to realize is that, you know, the development process as a whole can be really separated into like three buckets. And so there's the entitlement bucket, the engineering bucket and the building bucket. And when people think of like um, government approvals, they're typically thinking about building permits. And that's really the last part of the whole process. Coming well before that is the entitlement process. And then there's the engineering process in the middle. And engineering, that's basically all of your grading, all the moving of dirt, all of your subsurface utilities, everything like that. Everything that's done horizontally, that's in the engineering phase. Everything that's done vertically sticks in the ground. That's the building phase. But before you do all that, you got to go through the entitlement phase. And again, that's where I spent all my career and still do that stuff today. So we're going to talk more about entitlements more than the other stuff. So with that, land use entitlements refers to the legal rights granted by governmental authorities that dictate how a piece of land can be used or developed. And so when you're looking at um, news, like when you're on the news and you see like videos of planning commission meetings, people arguing about future development and stuff like that. That's the whole world of entitlements and entitlements. Again, they are approvals that are granted to a um, property. So they run with the land. They don't run with the owner. They don't run with the developer. They run with the land and these approvals. Once they are granted, they are vested. In other words, they they're assigned to that property. They stick with it as long as you act on that permit. As long as you act on that approval, then it's vested. It can't be taken away from you, essentially. So that's really important to understand because it's not as though you get the approval and then it just goes away. You know, there's a time limit in which you have in order to act on that. But once you act on it, it's actually vested. 
And so these entitlements typically include permissions, restrictions, and conditions related to zoning, land use, building codes, and other regulations as well. And obtaining land use entitlements is often um, a critical step in the process of developing or redeveloping real estate and involves navigating complex regulatory frameworks to ensure compliance with um, local jurisdictions and local rules and regulations. So basically what this is, is entitlements are the very first part of the overall development process, and they are necessary because it's basically the government agency telling you this is what you can do on your property. Now, philosophically, a lot of us may have issue with that concept, right? You know, we don't want to be told what we can do with the property, but reality being reality, that's what it is. And so what you may also kind of, or something else to kind of remember too here is that, um, you know, entitlements are typically in areas where you have zoning in place for the most part. There is an exception to that, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But you know, there's a lot of areas in the country that don't have zoning, and so entitlements don't really play into that as much as it does in areas that does have zoning. That said, vast majority of the country has zoning attached to it one way or the other. There are areas, I mean, like, for example, here in Texas, if you're outside the city limits, then you really have no zoning at, in play. And here's the thing with the, the zoning question. A lot of people look at zoning as a restriction, and it certainly is. And a lot of people will look at it as a bad thing and they'll stay away from it. And so they end up doing all their investing for, all their investing in areas where there is no zoning. And I would just say that I, while I understand that, also understand that the reason why there's opportunity in zoning is because it's an imperfect construct. Governments are reactive, they're not proactive. And so there's inefficiencies that are in the whole zoning makeup that allow for opportunities to be taken advantage of. You just have to understand what those opportunities are and how to take advantage of it. So this is a very niched thing. This is not, you know, um, this is not like get rich quick. This is not, you know, um, flipping houses. This is not HDTV type stuff. This is like real world, you know, real estate, real world land development. When you get into this type of stuff, you're graduating, you know, from probably the places where we all start and you're graduating we're getting closer to this world of development, like I said. So I want to point that out as well is that, you know, most of the people that are on this call are coming from the land investing world. And so all of you are very much professional in that space. Um, but getting into this entitlements, it's just like another skill set. And it's a skill set that's not typically associated with real estate. You know, it's not necessarily all of your, you know, analysis and all the things that you typically do in your, your deals. You're doing that stuff as well, but there's this added element to it. And we'll talk more about that. And the added element essentially is really understanding zoning, land use, but it comes down to a lot of relationships as well. And so it's a nuanced thing, but there's a lot of value in it, which brings me to this point. How does entitlements ultimately add value? Well, the reality is, is that, you know, most developers, they want to dig, they want to move dirt, they want to build buildings, and that's where they make their money, right? Well, entitlements add certainty and certainty always adds value. And what happens is, is that a lot of developers, they'll view the entitlement process as an uncertainty because ultimately to get the approval of these things, you have like a, a five member board of the planning commission or the city council or something like that, that ultimately grants that approval. And so many developers will see that process as a risk because they, they don't necessarily know how to manage that. They know how to manage everything that they're doing in terms of development and everything like that. And they're experts and professionals at that. And that's what they do. And that's where they make their money. They would rather have a property that's already zoned appropriately, has maybe entitlements in place where they just have to go in and, and bring that all the way to fruition. 
that's their their preference in many instances so it leaves this gap it leaves this space for them to be able to get some property that's entitled that again adds certainty and that's where we're coming into our value that's where our profession comes in is that we're able to spot the opportunity we're able to acquire the property and then we're able to actually you know come through with building that value into it by adding certainty through getting these entitlements in place and so again, the reason why entitlements add value is because it adds certainty to an otherwise uncertain picture from the perspective of the developers. So then it comes down to like the types of entitlements and there's a lot of different types of entitlements. And so understand that the word entitlement is really an umbrella term. And underneath that umbrella, there are a variety of types of entitlements. And some of them you're probably very familiar with, some of them you maybe not are familiar with. But, you know, the, I'm kind of starting at the top. This is like kind of the most complex type of, um, of um, entitlement, and that would be an annexation. And annexations are basically if you have property that is in one jurisdiction, let's say, let's say it's just two cities or a city and a county. So you say you have like the city of Austin, Texas, located in Travis County, and now there's this property that's right on the border of the city limits and the county of Travis County. And now what you're wanting to do is you're saying, well, I want that property to be a part of the city of Austin. I don't want it to be the part of Travis County any longer. And in order to do that, I need to go through an annexation process. And that annexation process, there's a variety of reasons why you'd want to do that. Ultimately, it comes down to a few things. One is, is that it's ultimately cheaper to um, develop in one jurisdiction or the other, or the length of time that it takes to actually get through the process in one jurisdiction or other may be more favorable. Or it might just be the political environment where you just think that it's going to actually have better favor getting approved by one jurisdiction or another. So this doesn't happen very often, but it only really happens in situations where you have a property that's on the border of two different jurisdictions. And so when that happens, you need to look at, is it benefit me to stay where I'm at or does it benefit me to actually go into the other jurisdiction? And by doing that, you can actually make the property that much more attractive. So to give you an example, one that really affects residents, I've seen this recently where you have, if it stayed in the current jurisdiction in the county, then the um, fees for regarding water was going to be 10 times as much for residents as opposed to if it went into this neighboring city. And so from a variety of perspectives, including marketability, it made more sense to try to annex the property into the other jurisdiction. So that way, it ultimately was a situation where the residents would benefit. It wouldn't be as much water. It'd be much more, you know, marketable, et cetera, et cetera. So there are very real reasons why annexing to one jurisdiction or the other makes more sense. More often than not, it's things like development impact fees. Um, there's fees to different jurisdictions and stuff, and that's all on the developer. That's not really on us and what we do, but it is stuff to be aware of. And while I'm in that, I want to be clear about like really what this whole strategy ultimately is. This is not a developer role. We are not developing the property at all. What we're doing is we are getting the entitlements in place and we're selling it to an end user, like typically a developer, builder, somebody like that. So that's our general you know, um, framework. We're not going about this and trying to go and build, develop, anything like that. If people wanna do that, there's certainly pathways to go and do that, but that's not the model that we're promoting because we're trying to go and move these things a little bit quicker than that. And we're trying to do it where we're not necessarily um, in, as involved physically on in terms of what's going on the ground. You can do this whole process without really ever touching the property most oftentimes. So that's annexations. 
The next one is zone changes is one of my favorites. Um, so basically, hopefully everybody here knows what zoning is. Um, I'm not going to go into a big old diatribe about what zoning is, but essentially zoning tells you what you can and can't do with the property, how you can use the property. Can you use it for single family, multifamily, commercial? And there's a variety of other things that it controls as well. But you may run into a situation where the zoning is not really ideal for what you envision as being the highest and best use. And so changing the zoning ultimately does that. You change it to something that allows for a higher and better use. So for example, if you have a single family home that's on a single family lot, and then right next to it is a multifamily building that's zoned for multifamily, that's why you have the multifamily building. Maybe it's possible to rezone that single family lot to multifamily. And therefore now the economic productivity that comes out of that newly rezoned property is much higher and therefore the value of the property goes up as well. And that's where you're forcing appreciation. That's the forced appreciation concept. So while I'm talking about that, just in case nobody doesn't understand that concept either, you have basically market appreciation and then you have forced appreciation. Market appreciation is what we take advantage of when we're thinking of our house and the whole market goes up and you know a rising tide floats all boats, right? That's market appreciation. Nothing we really can do to control that. However, the opposite is true with forced appreciation is where we have proactive things, things that we can do proactively to actually go about increasing the value of the property. There's a variety of ways to do that. Entitlements is certainly not the only way to go about um, forcing appreciation. It's just the way that I came up doing it. And it's the way that like I'm recommending and what I talk about. But and again, full disclosure, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about forcing appreciation. So zone changes being one of them is that you're basically changing what is allowed in terms of land use. So again, from a single family home to multifamily or from a single family home over to light office, there's a variety of ways that you can do that. Now be aware that you can't just change the zoning of a one property that's in the middle of a bunch of other properties that's zoned the same way. So you can't take a single family home that's zoned for single family and it's a residential subdivision and then just go and change the zoning of that one property over to multifamily, that's called spot zoning. They don't allow for that. You have to have some sort of logical land use justification for really getting that zone change approved. And so I'm not gonna go into all those details, but just know that there's strategies and ways that you can go about determining what actually constitutes a great um, rezoning um, candidate essentially. All right, so that's zone changes. Uh, the next one I'd be talking about would be zoning text amendments. And this is a little bit different. It's a little bit more nuanced, but Basically, the idea is, is that when you change the zoning of a property, you're changing what is actually going to be occurring on that one single property. And so you're changing it from R1 to C1 or whatever happens to be. So it goes from, in that example, a residential to a commercial zoning. That's changing what's going on on that one property. A zoning text amendment is changing what is allowed within every property within a particular zone. And so if you're looking at the requirements for like a C1 zone and you change the text within that, that, um, that zoning designation or that zoning designation, then everything changes for every C1 zone property in that whole jurisdiction, not just the one that you're looking at. And so there are reasons why you would do that. Um, ultimately, it turns out to be like maybe you want to change like a setback requirement or you want to change like an allowable land use or something like that. And the change that you want to do, you can't get there by changing to a different zoning designation. The, the changing to a new zoning designation wouldn't allow you to achieve what you're wanting to achieve. 
So instead you go about trying to change the text itself to be able to allow what you want to do. And again, if you're changing what can be allowed on a property, that is a major, major value bump that's right there. And that's the case study that I'm going to share at the end. Just understand that, you know, we all grew up hearing, you know, location, location, location. And while that's true, really even more true is use, use, use. How the property can be used is a strong determining factor in terms of its valuation. Right, variances. Really quickly, a variance is, but think of the term like deviation. And so if you have a standard in place and you want to deviate away from that standard, that is usually accomplished through something called a variance. And so an example of that very simple one would be, I have a five yard, five foot side yard setback that's required for this commercial building. And for whatever reason, I want to actually make it um, a three foot setback because that gives me more room to do a drive through on the other end of the property because I need the certain drive aisle width to be able to do that. And so I need a variance. I need to deviate away from the standard. And by doing that and getting that approved now where I was in a situation where I could get a Starbucks with a drive-through going in there. If without that variance, I can't get the drive-through. And if I can't get the drive-through, then I can't get Starbucks. So you can see how it's the you know a matter of two feet can make a huge difference in those situations. And so it's a very big value add if I can go and get that variance in place, allow for a site design that allows for a drive aisle, you know, for a, a drive-through, you know, now I can get Starbucks or whoever else in there. That's just one example. And it can, and it, and it runs up and down the ladder. So you could take that concept and bring it all the way down to a single family house, or you could take that concept and bring it all the way up, all the way up to like a regional mall or something like that. I just want you to understand the concept. I'm not saying the application. I'm not suggesting that you guys go and work on, you know, um, single tenant, triple net property like this, but I'm just trying to give you an example of when you can deviate away from the standard to be able to achieve your goal, that's where the value comes in. Because again, you're adding certainty. Otherwise, Starbucks is looking at it going, well, we're not certain about this. We're not feeling comfortable. Well, we're out. So that's the implication. Subdivisions. All right. Now, subdivisions, this is something that's more, you know, in line with what you guys are probably dealing with right now. You know, maybe you started in land flipping and you were, you know, turning off, you know, properties, you know, out west or something like that. And then you started graduating, you're starting to do larger properties, and then you started graduating into subdivisions. And so subdivisions is obviously a pretty big topic within the world of, you know, land investing right now or has been for the last few years. And so the thing I would want to point out is that subdivisions are a type of, of entitlement. Um, and subdivisions are the one exception to what I was talking about regarding zoning before. There are subdivision regulations that exist, you know, if you're not even in a jurisdiction with zoning. So you may not have any zoning, but there's still going to be subdivision regulations that are either going to be dictated by subdivision regulations at the county level or at bare minimum. It's going to be regulated by the Department of Health in relationship to like um, the size of lot that you need for septic systems, something like that. So just because you're in an area with no zoning, please don't think that there are no rules regarding subdivisions. There always will be. Um, but if you're in an area with no zoning, there's not going to be the land use controls that we typically, typically talk about in other um, realms of um, entitlements. So with subdivisions, really briefly, I just want to go over the fact there's really three types of subdivisions. And I've talked about this a lot of times before, too. And that is that there are the major subdivisions that we think of, where it's curb, gutter, sidewalk, road, streets, all the things that a lot of us live in, the typical Americana subdivision, right? That's the big major subdivisions. Then you have minor subdivisions. And minor subdivisions still require the similar um, you know, approval by the jurisdiction. Major subdivisions typically require the approval at least of the planning commission. 
minors may require planning commission approval in some jurisdictions it might just be staff approval but there is still a county process of some sort and what this comes down to is it's called the platting requirement and you may have heard this before in other areas too but the platting requirement is basically saying hey, in order to create this subdivision you have to create a subdivision plat and that subdivision plat has to have certain notations on it and there's certain conditions that are going to be attached to the approval of that subdivision plat and you have to basically meet all of those standards so that is something that needs to be platted. Again, you know, platted, it can be minor or major. Now, the other type of subdivision, this is the one that everybody talks about in the land space are these exempt subdivisions. And so when we say exempt, we're talking about exempt from the platting requirement or, or a land division that doesn't qualify under the definition of a subdivision. That would be an exempt subdivision, more or less. And so it's different in every state. Um, you know, a lot of states will have it attached to acreage. So, for example, here in Texas, there's a classic 10 acre exemption that everybody talks about. So if you're able to do um, 50 acre lot down to five, 10 acres and you're not doing any improvements regarding utilities or roadways or anything like that, then you can do this land division and you can do it without going through the county review process. You can have a surveyor do it and the surveyor just goes and records it at the recorder's office and you're on your way. It's the easiest type of land division that you can typically do. Um, it is a it is an avenue of forced appreciation, most definitely. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to going after these exempt subdivisions. Um, my only caveat, my only comment would be is that because they are a little bit easier to go through and they're faster, there's more people looking for them as well. It's just like anything else, right? So it's the lower hanging fruit. And so you're gonna have more people going after them, which is fine. Um, this is where I really recommend most people start out in this whole world of entitlements and subdivisions is with these exempt ones. Try to get some of these under your belt and then graduate into these minor and major subdivisions over time if that's what you want to do. Now, with that said, you can go and use this exempt subdivision strategy and find states all throughout the country that do this kind of have these exemptions in play. And with those you know, you can just basically go county to county, state to state, whatever you want to do and have your whole career just doing exempt subdivisions. So just a quick plug for us, you know, over on our website, we do have something that's called an exemption platting list. And so it's something that we did. We went through and went all this research. We went and looked at all 50 states and we found which states have these exempt um, exempt rules regarding exemptions to platting requirement. And there's about 16, 17 states that are throughout the country that have them. Like I said, a lot of them are based on acreage size. Some states are all the way down to five acres. Ones like Texas are 10. There's other states that are based on the number of lots that you're creating rather than the size. And then there's other states that are a little bit unique and have a combination of both. So a state like Arizona is one of those. And so some of you may have experience in this type of subdivisions. And so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you that um, um, don't have that kind of experience you know, just be aware that there's this opportunity that is out there. And only the caveat I would tell you is this, is that while there are these regulations at the state level, um, each county and each city does have the uh, ability to create their own regulations. Um, so the state law will say, here's what the regulation is, or here's what the exemption yeah. is, but then they'll give a card out to the counties or the cities, allowing them to create their own rules. Now I'll tell you this is that you hear that, you think that that's complex, but just know that in general, the more urbanized you go, the more likelihood is that they're going to have their own regulations in place. If you're out in the rural counties, then they're typically going to just basically accept the state um, exemption, essentially. 
So when we're looking at trying to look at opportunities for exempt subdivisions, still trying to get closer to the urban core, not being out too far, but not being so close in that you're going to be really triggering all these other types of requirements. So that, that makes sense to most of you. A lot of you are, are doing that same type of thing for your standard land flips anyway. So that's just something I want to point out. So three types of subdivisions, exempt, minor, and major. As you would imagine, exempts are cheaper, faster. Majors oh, are more expensive and more time consuming. If you guys don't mind, just make sure you um, mute, your, mute yourself if you don't Thank mind. You for your Thank you, guys. All right. So that's subdivisions. Moving on to use permits. Now, there's different types of use permits, um, ones that are called conditional use permits, another one called, called minor use permits. Every jurisdiction calls them a little bit different. But conditional and minor use permits are really more associated to the land use um, in of itself. So it's not changing what's allowed on the property. What it's saying is that the jurisdiction says, hey, we're okay with this land use in this zone, but we recognize that the use has unique operational characteristics that need to be addressed through adding additional conditions onto the project to make sure that it doesn't have negative impacts to surrounding property owners. So an example of that would be, they'll say, hey, you know, you could put a church inside a residential zone. However, we recognize that a church operates and functions differently than a residential home does. And so we need to do this as a conditional use permit so we can look at the unique characteristics regarding traffic, parking, a variety of other things to make sure that if there are any things that we need to address proactively, that we can do that in the form of these conditions of approval. And therefore it's binding upon the property owner, in this case, a church at that time to be able to operate accordingly. Other examples might be like auto body shops. Um, other examples can even for minor use permits can even be like, um, like martial arts studios can even trigger this minor use permit process. So this isn't necessarily applicable to like land every day, but it is something you need to be aware of because if you're in an urbanized setting that does have zoning, these kind of permits will come into play. And that could be either a turnoff to some you know, um, buyers, or it could be something that you look at and say, hey, I can take care of this for you. I can get you through this process. And therefore, again, adding more certainty to the picture. And again, this, the conditional use permit process is not that difficult. It's, it's really more formality in most instances more than anything else. Um, okay, so what's the approval process? So I'm going to kind of go over some general questions that I get from most people when I talk to them. And I want to kind of go through those and kind of answer those proactively, because I'm sure these are some of the questions that a lot of you guys already have. So a lot of times the approval process can be broken into either one of these three buckets. It's either it's a staff level approval, um, and that might be something like a minor use permit or something like that, or you have a planning commission approval. That'll be something like maybe a subdivision would do that. A conditional use permit would require a planning commission approval, or you could have something that requires city council approval. And a lot of times you can have stuff that requires both. So for example, a zone change would require the approval of the planning commission and the city council. Now getting into the weeds a tiny bit here is that planning commission and a zone change situation is really not the approval body. They're really more of a recommending body. So they're recommending approval of the city council to the city council. That's how that works. So when you have two bodies and two public hearings, there's a recommending body and then there's an approval body. So just kind of giving you an idea. So, but the process generally works though, is that you're going to go and you're gonna have your first interactions with the city and you're asking them the general questions. And ultimately you're kind of running towards something that's called a pre-application meeting. And that pre-application meeting, you're going in with a very preliminary concept plan of whatever you're trying to do. And they're gonna give you a set of comments. 
and you're looking for red flag issues that you're going to use to either say, hey, we don't want to move forward with this because these are too complex or whatever, or hey, we think we can mitigate and deal with these and we're ready to move forward. Once you decide to move forward, you're going to have a formal application and that formal application gets submitted to the jurisdiction and there's going to be all these things that need to be submitted as part of that application package. Once it's complete, you send that all over to the city and then they're going to start reviewing it. They're going to send it out to all the different divisions of the city, planning, building, environmental, you know, fire, police, whoever. And then they're going to submit comments back to you. And then you're going to have to address those comments by making corrections. And you'll keep going back and forth like that until you get a plan set that the city essentially can bless. And then at that point, you're going to go forward and go to your approval body. So staff approval, planning commission, city council, what have you. That is a very quick summary of what the approval process looks like. If anybody's familiar with it, you're going to feel like I glossed over it and I kind of did, but I'm just trying to give you like the highlights of what the process ultimately looks like. Very important in this is to be able to have complete applications. Very important in this is to be very responsive. Make sure it's like a game of tennis where the ball is always in their court and they're not waiting on you. Make sure that you're very responsive is really a big key thing. So how long does the approval take? You know, and the reality is, is that the approval um, can take a variety of, of a wide range of timeframes, depending on where you are and what kind of project you're working on. So a very basic four lot subdivision can be very quick. Something that's a full, you know, major subdivision can take quite a bit longer. And so I'll give you kind of two comparisons. And the one I use classically is um, I've seen somebody do a rezone in rural Tennessee that cost them no money and it took maybe two months to do.